Ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up one time for Mr. Mike Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT Union, single-handedly shitting on all politicians and the national news media with ease. And in the words, public enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Let's big up my my clinch <laughs> Honestly, the the I can't I can't get enough of journalists uh, uh you know just begging, just begging for Mike Lynch to take bait. Every time they're trying to bait him into science. And he's just going, nah, I'm just going to swerve you and then also dunk on you while I run it back. He's just absolutely outstanding. He, the dude is just out, outstanding. Just just salute him. Just salute to him. And, uh, you know, salute to all the union workers at this, uh, this moment in time, uh, specifically the RMT, which is the Rail Maritime and uh, I assume Transport. <laughs> I assume Transport Union. Uh, you can tell I'm not a member of it, but <laughs> but yeah, no, just shout shout out to him regardless because they they are just doing bits right now. Um, you know, currently currently doing some strikes. Uh, yeah, Ra- Rail Union of Rail uh, National Union of Rail Maritime and Transport Workers. There you go, specifically what they are. Um, and yeah, they're currently um, you know, just shutting shit down. Um, especially train lines. Um, yesterday as uh, Tuesday and now uh, drop day Thursday. Um, they are having strikes, um, and they're basically just shutting down like entire just entire just train lines. Honestly, um, I think it was like the statistic was uh, one fifth of uh, of line of of trains are being run. Um, so yeah, <coughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, lucky I don't have to be anywhere because <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's just it's just kind of grimy at the same time. Like all this discourse about unions and. Um, journalists, you know, trying to okie doke him and just uh, and just give off his vibes like, will you apologise to the people that need to need this and need this and need that? And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, of course. Like, you know, don't want to have a strike, bruv, but you know, that's what bargaining is. That's what that's what's supposed to be. Uh, in, that's what industrial action is. Like, it's just, you know, well, <laughs> it is it is what it is, bruv. It's this part, you know, if the, you could say that to the government. Government should, you know, in some ways apologise, and the the higher ups in, you know, National Rail and all that should apologise at the same time. Why does it have to be the union? Um, so yeah, it's just I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this, uh, you know, from the sidelines. I'm enjoying Mike Lynch just absolutely fucking dunk on everybody. It's just it's just glorious. Um, but yeah, we'll mention that um in the week where, but. And apart from that, solid week, can't complain. Um, but yeah, we have a solid, solid, solid episode for you today. Two sports, society and tech. And uh, also have a new interview uh, drop in uh, after the day after this episode. Um, new interview. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty special one. Um, so stay tuned for that. With that said, before we begin, email, Twitter, Discord, and call that all, that, all that in the full show notes. Please go peep the article for yourselves, give them a read. And support the writers that make the show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. Mm-hmm. 
In a week where British government approves extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the US, I feel like this has happened before. Um, I, could have been, I could have sworn I said this uh, on wax before uh, in a week where, but um, yeah, uh, they're, they're, they're gonna Assange's people are gonna uh, you know appeal it, so you know it's gonna go go around the go around the merry-go-round once again. Uh, but yeah, that's an update for you. Uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, loses parliamentary majority as left-leaning coalition gain. Um, so yeah, they're currently in a hung parliament, apparently. Um, so yeah, uh, Macron's going to have to do some bit. Uh, uh, also in, in leftist politics, uh, Gustavo Petro becomes Colombia's Colombia's uh, first leftist president. Uh, transgender women are banned from elite swimming competitions. And I hear that... Uh, Football and athletics, uh, unfortunately, going to be doing the same thing, uh, go, go down the same route, uh, which is disappointing. Uh, and lastly, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, public sector strikes begin uh, with more coming. Um, so, yeah, it's not just uh, RMT right now. Um, uh, There's going to be some barristers. I think teachers are thinking about it. Royal Mail. So, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be... Uh, we're going back to the 70s, ladies and gentlemen. We're going back. We're going all the way back. History is repeating itself. And, you know, as I keep saying, as I love to say, if you don't learn history, you are doomed to repeat it. So let's begin with this article. A very damning article and a very depressing article at the same time. And just unfortunate in every sense. Um, simply put, it is called Child Gymnasts Abused and Denied Water, Food and Toilet Breaks, The Damning Report on British Gymnastics. Um, so yeah, this is my Sean Ingle, uh, Chief Sports reporter for the Guardian, and yeah, it's just um, I don't know, I just saw it, and I was, and honestly, I saw this. This is the 16th of June. This this uh, secret article uh, uh, dropped, so it's been a minute, um, and I feel like nobody, I felt I've seen no other news on this. It's really weird. Um, I, I I don't really I don't really get it. Um, you know, it's just it's actually, it's actually in the in the bullet points here. Children as young as seven were physically abused. It's like well. <laughs> Uh, a British gymnastics and UK sport quote put medals above welfare like bro like fat shaming food hiding physical abuse it's, it's crazy bro there's a lot of testimony to this but I'm just going to read this overall article and uh, feel free to do more digging on your front so let's jump right in. British gymnastics enabled a culture where young gymnasts were starved body shamed and abused in a system that ruthlessly put the pursuit of medals over the protection of children a devastating report has found the independent review by Anne White QC, uh, based on more than 400 submissions from those in the sport, unearthed stories of gymnasts younger seven uh, being sat on by coaches while stretching and others humiliated in front of their peers and deprived of food and water by coaches. Quote, I heard the extreme accounts of gymnasts hiding food, for example, in ceiling tiles or under their bed in their rooms. Uh, writes White at one point. Uh, I received accounts of coaches checking hotel rooms army style. <laughs> excuse me, army style, and travel bags for food, unquote. Around 75% of British gymna uh, gymnastics members are children under the age of 12. That's crazy to think about. That's actually crazy. 75% under 12. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I, I'm surprised it hasn't been... See, this is the thing, right? It's, I feel like this is kind of just a black spot for gymnastics in the, as a whole because I watched I watch gymnastics with my mum because she enjoys watching it. And, you know, it's kind of, athletically, it's a very interesting just sport in general. Um, just watching them vault and all that shit. The rings, especially when the dudes do the rings. Fuck, 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 fuck. It's crazy. Like, just watching their muscles just strain is crazy. Um, and the vaulting, etc., etc. The bars, especially. Great stuff. Um, but, yeah. You know, while it's a fa fascinating sport, like, 
this is this is not this is not new, right? Maybe for British gymnastics is new, but as a whole for gymnastics in general, it's just not. It's it's been it's been a meme for a minute, um, and it's been a real thing for a while. You know, for Russia, I'm assuming. <laughs> allegedly, you know, Chinese uh, is probably doing you know some some nefarious shit as well um, on a training tip. Americans as well, so you know it's not it's not new under it's not new under the sun this particular um, type of article. But the fact that British gymnastics are doing it is is depressing. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Members uh, seventy five uh, British gymnastics members are children under the age of twelve, and her report found girls were subjected to some of the worst treatment, which White says was caused by quote long standing cultural problems unquote initially by the arrival of Soviet style coaches. Here we go, Soviet style. There you go, there you go. A little hint right there. However, her report, which took nearly two years to compile and cost three million pounds, also makes for deeply uncomfortable reading for UK Sport, the funding body for British Olympic sports which admitted to Whites that the welfare of athletes was not front seat until 2017. Quote, One wonders how many sporting scandals it would take before the government of the day appreciates appreciates its needs to take more action to protect children who participate in sport. Warns White at the start of her 306-page review, which describes a culture that permitted physical mental abuse. It includes stories of, and these are bullet points, Number one, gymnasts being reduced to tears and injured by coaches sitting on them as they stretched. One said that they did not know how their legs didn't quote-unquote snap when being stretched. Another one, another former elite gymnast uh, described being made to stand on a beam for two hours because she was frightened to attempt a particular skill. Others were strapped to the bars for extended periods of time, sometimes when in great distress. Oh my gosh. Uh, White said, quote, coaches went to damaging lengths to control what gymnasts ate and weighed to the extent of searching luggage and rooms for food, unquote. The, quote, tyranny of the scales, unquote, led to gymnasts suffering from eating disorders and associated mental health issues. Quote, in one case, I was told that even when the coach was aware that the gymnast had an eating disorder, they continued to name and shame her in public, White adds. In total, more than 40% described physically abusive behaviour towards uh, gymnasts by coaches. There were 30 submissions that related to sexual abuse. However, White noted that this was not systemic and was taken more seriously by the organisation. Incredibly, White found that British Gymnastics kept no records of complaints from 2008 and 2016, while a quote-unquote culture of fear meant many gymnasts were too scared to come forward. I was gonna. I'm. I'm. I'm kind of asking where the parents sent this right at this front as well. Uh, yeah, just a thought. Um, I'm probably being. I'm probably wrong in that statement, but I don't know. Uh, until 2008, no British gymnast had ever won an Olympic medal, but has since delivered 16 over the past four games. Yet, White made clear that this had come at, at, at a price, as she questioned whether there was a link uh, with the UK so-called cash for medals drive. However, she accepted the sport was undergoing changes under its new chief executive, Sarah Powell, who offered a full apology. Quote, I had to speak to gymnasts this morning, she said, and it was hard because you look, you could see how it affected them. I looked them in the eye and I said, and said, sorry, it is not acceptable. It's emotional for me. I'm a mum and sport is not supposed to do this. But gymnasts, gymnastics will be different because of the bravery of the bravery of the young people who spoke up, unquote. Powell was unable to say if anyone had been disciplined or whether the coaches responsible for worse forms of abuse were still in the British system, but she insisted this is not everywhere, adding, uh, there are great coaches, hundreds of thousands of young people join the sport day in day out. I don't like that quote. I, I, 
if I feel like names should be named. <laughs> you know what I mean, like if if they're not in the if they're not in the ranks anymore, fine, cool. But that's just that's just a weird quote to say. Um, you know, just uh, I feel like there's been a bow off there where it's just like can't name and shame people, but it's like mm, not 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 that not that assured for me. Not assured on my front, but anyway. Who am I? I guess I'm just I'm speaking on a podcast. Uh, White was critical of UK sport and questioned how its mission process had failed to identify any adverse or worrying cultural issues in gymnastics. Quote, the ungenerous uh, interpretation is that the mission process was was window dressing for those sports like gymnastics where medals were realistically anticipated and that the medals mattered more than amber ratings and more than athlete welfare, she added. UK sports uh, chief executive Sally Monday, spelled with a U, uh, disputed, disputed the analysis saying... Uh, quote, we reject the notion that there, <laughs> there has ever existed cash for medals. Uh, however, Sport England admitted to why its own historic performance-related targets had probably driven the wrong sort of behaviour in sport, although it had no way of knowing whether it caused abusive behaviour. I mean, it's it's kind of easy to have that mindset, right, of the cash for, me- uh, cash for, uh, cash for medals uh, system, right? I know it's not a system system, right? I know it's not systemic, but... <laughs> It's a it's an it's a logical thing to jump. It's a logical uh it's a logical case to jump to or, or a a result to jump to because these 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 sports get funded right and depending on how you know fruitful that sport is they will either get more funding or less funding. British basketball has nearly no funding. Why? Um, because apparently we suck at basketball. Who knew, right? <laughs> but, you know, how about if you put some funding in it and have some actual structure and an institutional, you know, hierarchy on that front, you know, from uh, from schools to the professional leagues, because we do have a professional league um, and, you know, we do have a British basketball uh, body, you know, these need to connect. But obviously they're, they're not. They don't, they're not convinced, I guess, that there's a good plan for it or whatever. Um, you know, recently, um, BMXing, BMX racing has become uh, a, a, a nice little darling and a new one recently. Um, there's many great uh, BMX riders here in the UK, uh, racers anyway. And it's a really fa- and it's a really fun sport to watch actually. I, I, I watched a I watched a championship um I think in Scotland a few couple of weeks ago. It was really it's really good to watch. Um just great car- great carnage, good action. It's really good sport. Um I recommend it. But yeah, you know, that I recently got medals um in Tokyo and you know, th- therefore they get funding. Athletics is obviously a very popular sport in these kind of ranks. They get funding. Um gymnastics, funding, swimming, probably the most funding next to cycling. Um, I'm taking a guess, but I'm pretty confident in that in that fact. Um, so yeah, you know, it is what it is. Um, it's 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 you you get cash if you do well or you have a good plan going. Um, so you know, why, there's there's motivation there, and that's the only motivation. You know, obviously medals are part of it, but you don't get medals if you don't get funded, and if you don't get funded, your you, your chances are dwindling. Um, your percentage is lower. Anyway, let's jump right. Let's continue. Uh, meanwhile, the former British gymnastics CEO Jane Allen, who had initially uh, blamed the press for negative reports, was uh, more contrite after the White Review was published. Quote, I'm deeply sorry I didn't do more for everyone, especially the athletes, to feel supported, to able to speak up and be heard, she said. There's nothing more vital. This was under my leadership and should have been different. Well, you know, it's, 
<laughs> I don't know why you're acting bullish at first, and now you're now you're going, oh, sorry, sorry. So it's a bit weird on that front. You know, I mean, that's the attitude. I'm that that attitude makes my eyebrows raise. Like it's, it's not popping a shot at you. It's just being factual. And now now you you got caught. You self-reported. You know, just saying. Oh what what no it's not, nothing like this da, 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 da. and now you're apologising it's a bit weird a bit weird on that front anyway campaign group gymnast for change said why its report had hadn't gone far enough there you go there you go on one side it's not gone far enough apparently quote it should have uh, should not have been left to the campaign book of athletes and parents to expose the culture of catastrophic safeguarded failings facts it said. Uh, ultimately, medals were prioritised over athlete welfare. After two years of waiting, this is too little too late to change a culture of mistreatment. Until these recommendations are fully enacted, we strongly advise parents to consider whether they should place their children in British gymnastics clubs, unquote. Michelle North, head of the NSPCC's Child Protection and Sport Unit, was also critical of the sport, adding, quote, what had been revealed today is extremely disturbing and completely unacceptable, unquote. Why makes 17 recommendations for the sport and identifies four key areas to, quote, uh, shift the focus of the sport to gymnast welfare and well-being, unquote. There are, they are care of children uh, and welfare, complaints handling, standards and education, and governance and oversight. So that's the entire article. And yeah, again, I just feel like this hasn't been talked about enough i don't know why um i know gymnastics is not the most popular sport here in this country but you know it's a very we're, we're, we're good at it we're we're at least top five i think um you know being being completely objective um so you know i don't i don't see why uh, this has been the only kind of coverage i've seen uh, you know and this is kind of just the news breaking if anything I'm, I'm surprised i haven't seen more publications um looking into this um but then again the report itself is out so what else is there to report so to speak um but yeah regardless of that um this is just um it's just grim it's just grim and it really upholds you know a very damaging just uh cloud that gymnastics as a sport generally has um, and especially towards young women. I don't know about men, by the way. Um, it didn't say anything about men. So I don't know what the male gymnastics, uh, you know, world is about. Um, but yeah, especially for women. I mean, yes, it's, it's been long documented. The gymnastics world is not that, not that great for women. Uh, but you know, P.S. Some women go for it. Um, and uh, yeah, man, it's. <laughs> If they're good at it, they're good at it. But damn, man, something, something's got to give on that one. So I hope into our second uh, sports segment, and uh, this is uh, just an interesting one that came across um, a very interesting point in time, you know. Um, so this is called uh, under NYT ownership, the Athletic uh, lays down quote unquote no politics rule for staff. Um, yeah, this is I don't know, just uh, it just came across to me, and I was just like, um, don't know about this one, Chief. Uh, <laughs> you know, so this is by uh, Laura Wagner, Wagner, Wagner. Um, via defector, um, and yeah, let's just jump right in. Let's jump straight in because yeah, <laughs> asking uh, asking sports journalism staff to not talk about politics is uh, in this day and age. I don't know. It's it's kind of a rock and hard place. So let's let's have a look. The New York Times 
acquired the Athletic in January, the bosses who got rich from the deal roundly assured Athletic staffers that not much of anything would change. A memo from co-founder Alex Mather said that the Athletic would operate, quote, as a standalone editorial unit separate from the newsroom of the New York Times. Six months later, this promise is already being broken. According to multiple staffers who spoke with Defector, in the internal meeting notes obtained by Defector, not only have those in charge limited reporters travel, making it harder for them to do their jobs, but they've recently laid down new laws in order to bring athletics, the athletics editorial operations in line with those at the Grey Lady. Uh, new York Times is what they call that, apparently. Um, an MIT spokesperson said, quote, our travel, but overall travel budget is in line with pre-pandemic levels, unquote, apparently. Some of these changes, new verbiage for issuing corrections and new guidance for anonymous sourcing, for example, are relatively mild. But another, dealing with the thorny issue of politics and journalistic objectivity is more drastic and has a and has potentially far-reaching implications for the people whose work made the athletic what it is today. Many athletic staffers, especially those hired before the athletic co-founders became desperate to find a buyer and cash out investors, joined the relatively young startup partly because they were sold on the company's ideas about reporters' autonomy. The Athletic, they were made to understand, was a place where staffers and potential st- uh, and potential staffers could be journalists and fully-fledged members of society, not the, excuse me, not the smug lobotomy patients so often valorised by uh, fuddy-duddy newspaper oligarchs. It's promised as a workplace uh, where reporters would have the freedom to express themselves fully and civilly without worrying if they were running afoul of some uh, onerous and unevenly enforced social media policy uh, was what one staffer called a quote-unquote major selling point in the company's sales pitch. After all, isn't it the rigour of reporting and clarity of thought that matters? As of June 8th, that has changed. In a meeting last week, addressing editorial changes, including the new mandate, Chief Content Officer Paul Fichtenbaum acknowledged uh, the no-politics policy was a departure from uh, previous operating guidelines, quote-unquote, departure there. He stated that in accordance with the new policy, staff members should not express their political beliefs on social media or any platform. In giving an example about what would count as political, he said, quote, we don't want to stop people from having a voice and raising their voice for appropriate issues. Sure. But... <laughs> there comes a point where something that is a straightforward hey I'm concerned about guns in America for instance right that's an apolitical statement it becomes political when you say I'm concerned about guns in America and this political party is the reason why we're having such an issue right uh, That when it t- uh, that's when it tips over so again we don't want to stop people from having a voice and expressing themselves we just need to keep it from tipping over into political space the vast grey area between the outside, uh, between outside, between and outside of these two silly hypothetical statements weren't unaddressed. As did the question of who gets to decide what counts as the political space. That's, that's an easy, that's an easy, uh, just come back on that front. It's a very easy uh, rebuttal. In response to a question from a staffer seeking clarification on this question, Fichtenbaum said, "Quote: I don't personally view matters of race and its politics." Uh, mm, see, f- see, see, see. This is interesting. This is interesting, right? Because I told you guys about Grenfell last last week, right? I was talking to you guys about it. I told you about the story when I was at stu- my student radio, and I talked about the Grenfell Tower fire, you know, days afterwards, days after it happened. And, um, or not days after it happened, but, you know, after it happened. And um, and then I got called in, you know, called in, quote unquote, just to, you know, say you can't talk about politics on that. And I'm, I'm talking about people who's dead in the fire. Um, but you know they could have easily you know made it a racing as well, um, but they didn't. They just made it politics. But it's interesting. 
uh, the um, Fichtenbaum says talks about race here. Um, so yeah, uh, racist politics again. Like it could become a matter of politics if it goes that way, but on its own, I don't think about that. Race is a political thing when we're what is in, in what we're talking about. Unquote. So overall, I'm just not I'm just not into this at all. It's, it's, it's such a thin, it's such a grey area um, to do that. I'm concerned about guns. Who talks like that? I'm concerned about guns. Let's not find us. How about see? This is this is the thing. You know, I I try to be uh, solutions based when it comes to an issue, right? If I don't, if I can't talk about, an, I can talk about an issue, right? And I'll say outright, I don't have a solution to this, or I do have a solution to this. Hear, hear me out. But to say, just to just stay up uh, to say apolitical like that and just go, I I'm concerned about guns. What? <laughs> Nobody talks like that. It's crazy. Anyway, it's unclear when exactly white newsroom execs got comfy deciding that racial justice isn't a political concern. But the more pressing question is, why exactly do Fichtenbaum and his ilk uh, understand race to be, if not one of the primary axes on which, uh, upon which politics are formed and enacted? Could he give one example of a matter of race that is not political? The fact to put these questions to Fichtenbaum via, via two people, uh, two spokespeople from the Times, uh, they declined to answer. A statement from Jordan Cohen, the you know MIT's executive director, director of communications, did not answer the defector's questions uh, about what staffers were and were not allowed to say and and do under this new policy. It read, "Quote: The Athletic had, had has its up, has updated its journalism uh, guidelines to reinforce editorial independence and continue to serve its audience of dedicated sports fans." Created by the Athletics Editorial Leadership, these guidelines uh, cover sourcing, participation in public life, and conflicts of interest. We're not going to comment on specific comments uh, about uh, are made during an internal staff meeting. Unquote. Uh, the new policy generously grants that reporters are allowed to vote. They go on to say that, quote, staff members can contribute to social causes, although if that particular cause becomes newsworthy for the Athletic, that staff member will be forbidden from covering it. <laughs> That is such a slippery slope. Quote, what about Black, Li- uh, Black Lives Matter? Is that a social cause? Who will write about athlete protests? What about trans athletes and sports and stuff for us? Where, where this policy gets you is that uh, the people who care the most about a particular issue, the people who are most informed about a particular issue, are now the ones who are banned from covering the issue, unquote. And that's facts. That's facts. That's exactly the response. Uh, several staffers wondered what exactly is the difference between social and political. They also are, uh, express uh, concern over if and how they are supposed to predict which quote-unquote social issue may become politicised, especially by an increasingly reactionary public- Republican Party that's constantly looking for new ways to expand their vicious attacks on the basic humanity of black people, transgender people, and women. Quote, We could stand up for our rights, Fichtenbaum said in the meeting, but we should uh, not say we disagree with somebody's politics, unquote. It feels almost too stupid to type out something that's obvious, but apparently it must be said. Standing up for someone's rights almost always means disagreeing with someone else's uh, politics. Throughout the meeting, Fichtenbaum repeatedly asserted that this policy is one that 2,000 colleagues at the New York Times follow, as if Black Times journalists and thousands of other journalists across media haven't recently and publicly challenged these social media policies and broader notions about objectivity. This is not an abstract debate point for FX staffers looking to keep their jobs. It's a labour issue. Of course, some athletic staffers, recognising they have a relatively stable job in the chaotic media business, or perhaps hoping that they themselves might eventually be able to make the leap to the times, are accepting of the new policy. 
But the, uh, for others, especially those who know their identities or beliefs will make them a target for scrutiny, the policy and the way it was handed down is worrying. There are four affinity groups of the athletic. For queer staffers, black staffers, women staffers, and one for staffers to discuss mental health. Up until the New York Times takeover, as several staffers have taken, uh, to, taken to calling the acquisition, these affinity groups had the ear of the company leadership, meeting once every three months to discuss with co-founders and other managers and que- uh, questions and concerns that arose in their newsroom. This dialogue, a staffer complain- explained to Defector, allowed uh, workers to hear f- perspective from leadership and share their own thoughts and insights, especially about topics that tend to get lost in broader sports media ecosystem. Uh, it wasn't a formal line of communication a union would uh, have with government, for example, but it was something. As early of this year, yeah, as of earlier this year, around the time the athletic was acquired, these conversations dropped off. Hmm, interesting. Uh, quote, Since the merger, we haven't uh, had a single meeting of that nature, not the staff at all defector, adding that it made understanding this new policy, what counts as politics or not, even more difficult. We have no sense of where that line is drawn. Unquote. This staffer told Effector that the rationale offered by higher-ups was insufficient. Uh, quote, when we, are, when we were asking questions about circumstances and asking for examples, all they were saying is, we want you to feel confident in your identity, but you can't show you disagree with politicians, political parties, and other organisations whose policy actively tries to take it away. Unquote. Uh, several staffers also emphasised that the process for what happens when a staffer is found to have violated this policy hasn't been articulated clearly. Let alone put in writing. In the meeting, Fichtenbaum said, quote, we don't want to be punitive, unquote, uh, but, real, <laughs> but absent a real process and work protections, like just cause for firing, the Athletic slash New York Times could conceivably terminate any staffer for violating or violating this policy. Uh, the tight brackets of the Times uh, declined to answer the effect's question about this pretty process for uh, reporters found to be in violation of the policy, on brackets. The vagueness of the policy and lack of information about how a violation would be handled is alarming to some staffers. Quote, it feels like the deciding factor is if some right-wing Twitter account with lots of followers decides to rally the troops and get pissed off at you. Then management is going to say, well, you crossed the line, another staffer said. And the new policy invariably means staffers are rehashing the same crucial but exhausting debates about objectivity and what counts as politics. But it also means that some of them are thinking in new ways about the material conditions of their jobs. If workers have no say over their new owners, unilaterally demanding that they change the way they interact with the world uh, or risk losing their jobs, what can they control? That's a great question. It's a great question to finish up on. And uh, the answer is, shit, man, don't know. Unless you unionise, I mean, that's kind of becoming a theme recently, isn't it? You know, with uh, Starbucks in the US and uh, other places in the US and Amazon and all that. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel like uh, that's probably a way to go. I'm surprised journalists uh, haven't done like a, you know, kind of like Writers Guild um, uh, for screenwriters. Uh, you know, I'm surprised they haven't done that kind of thing where it's just national national union. Um, obviously, that'd be a very uh, big task to uh, actually build and organize on that front. So, you know, um, obviously, you know, journalists rarely have time to do something of that nature. Um, but, you know, it's worth a shot. It's worth a shout, um, definitely, especially to combat shit like this. This is crazy. Um, this is just, yeah, I, I, I would, you know, I'm very, I'm very, very principled um, when it comes to shit like this. And um, some people can rephrase that word, uh, use a different word. Some people might use the word stubborn. And, um, you know, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't say, you know, you're wrong on that front. Um, princip- sticking to principles can come off as stubbornness. And, uh, you know, I have been culprit to 
that as well. Um, I say principles. Some people might say stubborn. Is what it is. But mm, I don't know, man. I'm just. I just. I, I would. I would. I'd leave practically immediately. It's just like, excuse me. No, not happening. Not happening. And it's, and it's, you know, most um, uh, you know, a lot of sports reporters um, and journalists, sports journalists, uh, you know, kind of have their niche uh, in, in general, right? Um, you know, there's people that cover general sports news, you know, the beat reporters, they go team to team, whatever, whether the team they're allocated or, you know, they're league wide reporters, national reporters, you know, in that sense. Um, and then, and then, and then, you know, you have people that, uh, a journalism inside, uh, you know, that's why I love Anscape as, as a, as a, just a website, um, as a journalism website, cause they don't cover just sports. They cover, you know, the intersections of sport and other things. Uh, culture, race, you know, uh, whatever. That's why that's why I enjoy that kind of journalism and the fact that the athletic, you know, I've never seen them, you know, be known for that kind of thing. But obviously, I guess they have um, in journalism circles. Um, but now that they can't do that, those particular journalists, like I said in the article, are kind of fucked. And uh, yeah, I don't know what I don't know what decision they'd make there. You know, what I mean, just. Um, if you can, if you can dip and go somewhere else, then good for you. But obviously, um, you know the journalism uh, world is very cutthroat. So uh, yeah, man. All I can say is salute and good luck uh, to whatever decision you guys make on that front. So switch up and uh, talk about some weed. Uh, this is our society uh, segment, and uh, it's literally called "Let's Grow Cannabis on Mass." Say campaigners. Um, this is by Sophie K. Rosa, uh, who is a freelance journalist, um, and uh, is via Navarra Media. And uh, I'm here for it. Grow, grow your weed, guys. Grow your weed. Bun your weed. Uh, you know, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised weed hasn't been legalized yet. But then again, we have a lot of problems going on right now, so it's you know kind of low on the list. Uh, so let's jump right. Before destroying, destroying uh, their 40-acre cannabis crop at the home office's behest in July 2019, workers at the hemp farming cooperative Hempen in Oxfordshire roamed the fields, clapping and singing in an attempt to warn away the wildlife that had found its home among the plants. Having to quote-unquote destroy our healthy crop was devastating, recalls Patrick Gillet, or Gillet uh, co-founding farmer of Hempen, and yet the palpable injustice of it felt like a turning point on the path to reform. Hempen was legally growing industrial hemp, a non-psychoactive strain of cannabis, lowering THC, the chemical that gets people high, uh, which it used to make hemp and cannabid oil, uh, CBD, uh, well-being products such as oils and moisturizers. After applying it to renew its industrial hemp license required by law to grow industrial hemp, the cooperative was told by the Home Office that the law had changed such that they could no longer illegally extract CBD from their plants to make their products and would have to instead import the oil from abroad. Now, UK hemp crops can only be harvested for seeds and straw. In order to, in order not to run the risk of penalties, court or even prison sentences, the farmers had no choice but to tear up their beloved crop. Now, uh, Gilet, or Gillet, I'm going to say Gillet, uh, is supporting a mass civil disobedience campaign, Liberate Hemp, organised by a collective of farmers, health practitioners, weavers, gardeners and artists, calling for people to grow industrial hemp plants without a licence, both at home and at a mass action on the 18th of June in Bristol. Uh, quote, we want to get people growing hemp en masse, says Gillett. Uh, 
to render the law redundant and leave the government with a choice. Either follow the people and what's right and fair, or start criminalising everyone who has participated in civil disobedience. Uh, to date, uh, Gillett isn't aware of anyone who has been prosecuted for growing hemp. Campaigners want hemp to be fully legalised, and uh, like other farm crops, because of the plant's many uses and benefits. Indeed, Gillett uh, describes it as, uh, quote, an ecological and health wonder crop. Uh, hemp is commonly used to make health and wellness products, such as oils and skincare and supplements used to manage epilepsy and mental health issues, amongst other things. It also, it's also harvested to make building materials such as sustainable insulation and concrete alternatives. Hemp cultivation itself has environmental benefits too, sequestering carbon faster than forests and improving soil quality as it grows. The crop also presents economic opportunities. The UK has the biggest CBD market in Europe, valued at £690 million. Yet due to the strict regulatory framework around hemp, most products are imported. The market therefore holds untapped potential uh, for UK farmers, many of whom would benefit from diversification to help them stay afloat in an increasingly hostile economic climate. Growing industrial hemp is, legally speaking, uh, no different from growing psychoactive cannabis plants, both are controlled substances under the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act and subject to a strict licensing regime regulated by the Drugs and Firearms Unit at the Home Office. An industrial hemp license from the Home Office costs around £600 and the process of acquiring one is bureaucrat- bu- quote, bureaucratic, unjust and unfair, unquote, according to Gillett. Um, farmers applying to grow hemp, he says, are often refused to uh, a license for opaque and trivial reasons, such as the field in question being close to a footpath or road. All this is despite the UN Convention on Narcotics removing CBD from its controlled drug schedules, following recommendations from the WHO, World Health Organization, which found no public health risks for the substance. Considering, oh, excuse me, scratch your nose, uh, considering industrial hemp has no psychoactive properties, it would appear nonsensical that it falls under the Misuse of Drugs Act. Its criminalization in this way, argues Gillett, is without a, quote, ethical or social justification, unquote. Gillett believes these tight regulations stem from the interests of those with monopolies over the rapidly growing legal cannabis market. For example, British Sugar runs the UK's largest non-psychoactive cannabis farm, and the company's managing director, Paul Kenwood, is uh, married to Conservative MP Victoria Atkins. What a fucking surprise. The cons are knee-deep in bullshit again. Who fucking called it? Um, who was responsible for government drug policy from 2017 to 2019? How is this legal? How how is that legal? Oh, fuck, you know. <sighs> Since 2016, uh, British Sugar has sold its cannabis to GW uh, Pharmaceuticals, the only UK company licensed to manufacture medicinal cannabis, which was bought by Jazz Pharmaceuticals in May 2021 for £7.2 billion. Pounds. If more people and more farms were licensed to grow hemp, says Gillett, it would pose, quote, a major threat to the pharmaceutical industry, unquote. I'm here for it. Uh, The origins of drug laws uh, impacting industrial hemp, however, are less about corporate interests and more about racism. Oh, boy. Uh, Whilst in the 16th century, there was a law stating, uh, yeah, uh, stating that landowners in England had to set aside a quarter of their acreage, acreage, that's the word, for hemp cultivation. And in the 19th century, Queen Victoria may have been prescribed cannabis for menstrual cramps. By the 1930s, cannabis was illegal. British prohibition uh, uh, followed the more panic over reefer madness in the US at the time, 
when criminalization was championed by a campaign that linked marijuana to black men who were vilified as, amongst other things, a threat to white women. Uh, I'm coming for your white women, guys. I'm coming for your white women. Trust me, I'm not. Uh, the Misuse of Drugs Act in the UK today continues the racist history of cannabis prohibition. Quote, it's a completely nonsensical piece of legislation, says Andre Gomez, communications coordinator for Release, the UK Centre of Expertise on Drugs and Drug Laws. The act, he says, is, quote, only driving harms, unquote, especially the disproportionate criminalization and incarceration of people of color. Suspected cannabis possession, for example, is often used as basis grounds on which to stop Excuse me, stop and search black men, uh, who are at least seven times more likely to be targeted than white men. The Liberate Hemp campaign, then, is situated in a much wider context of cannabis laws and campaign against them. Uh, whilst the government is cracking down on drugs and tightening restrictions on cannabis overall, uh, with cannabis legalization and pushing on in other countries, and legal medicinal use rising, many campaigners believe it's only a matter of time before we see legalization in the UK. Uh, but legalization isn't the end goal. Gomez points out that since uh, medical cannabis was legalized in 2018, and indeed before that, uh, medical development and access to cannabis has been dictated by big business, meaning it's also exclusively available via private healthcare. Hemp campaigning, he argues, like drug law campaigning, must be attentive to the inevitable attempts of the state and big business to control and monopolize profits if, profits if hemp is fully legalized. So, quote, the people who have historically and criminally been damaged by the prohibition don't get forgotten, unquote. As has happened in Canada with the drugs legalization for recreational use. Indeed, the legal cannabis industry in the UK is already dominated by white men. Who who saw that coming? Liam O'Dowd is the editor of uh, Leafy, a cannabis-focused magazine, and he he says that industry events are uh, are dominated by white men in button-down collared shirts talking about profits and lobbying. Fuck, that sounds just dead. (laughs) That just sounds... that, That is like completely opposite vibe. Wow. Like, hey guys, do you wanna do you wanna do you wanna do you wanna hit up this uh do you wanna hit up this industry event? So there's gonna be a bunch of white men in button college shirts talking about lobbying. <sighs> yeah, I'm here for that. Let me get into that. To combat this, he argues campaigning on cannabis laws, whether for industrial, well-being, uh, medicinal, medicinal, or recreational recreational use, must recognise the racism written into the laws and the ways uh, they are enforced. What's more, uh, hemp campaigners need to acknowledge that growing hemp illegally as an act of resistance carries carries greater risks for people of colour compared to white people. Uh, Gillett says the Liberate Hemp campaign recognises this and will consider, uh, quote, a prosecution of one, uh, to one, a prosecution to all. Uh, and plans uh, to highlight the inherent racism in cannabis laws uh, more as the campaign uh, gathers momentum. Uh, beyond uh, popularising the myriad health uh, and environmental benefits of hemp, uh, then campaigners have the potential uh, to lay the groundwork for a future cannabis industry grounded in social and racial equality. Equity, sorry. Quote, uh, I think the hemp industry can do so much uh, from its position of legitimacy to uh, support wider campaigning on cannabis laws, says Gomez, including uh, uh, calling for the overhaul of the Misuse of Drugs Act and the expungen- expungement of cannabis-related criminal records if the substance is legalised. In terms of hemp specifically, campaigners could also fight to make sure the crop's full legalization doesn't exclude, excuse me, uh, racialized uh, people and those criminalized by cannabis laws. Uh, in the near future, 
uh, different aspects of the cannabis industry are bound to gain legitimacy and legalization uh, at different weight. Uh, whoa, I need to do the Jonathan Ross there. Whites, different whites, different rates uh, for O'Dowd. What's crucial is that activists from different backgrounds recognize the ways in which they're all part of the same struggle. But, you know, some of them are not going to see that way because, uh, you know, they, I, I could have sworn, I could have sworn that um, that Jacob Rees-Mogg of all people has a hand in, like, a, in, in, in the cannabis market. I could have sworn he had something in that. So if it's people like him, then fuck it. Like, you, 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 there's, you're going to have to, you're going to have to draw a line between them, all right? You're going to have to because if it's people like that, uh, you're not going to get many places. You're just not. finish up with uh, tech and this is all about the, the the new the new platform in ship hosting uh, which is Dali uh, D-A-L-L-E um, with a with a dash in between L and E fucking hell don't know why I did it like that but anyway you know what I mean you, you've you've seen it you've seen the you've seen the weird creations that people have done uh, you know just constant ship hosting that's basically what it's been used for um, uh, so yeah this is an article about it uh, this is by Casey Newton uh, via The Verge um, and yes, I find it. I just find Dali interesting um, as a as a as a AI and uh, just um, and what it can do because it can do some really good shit. Um, even even here, um, they have a pro- they've given a prompt to it uh, for for the article, and it says uh, "Teddy bears on the moon, uh, digital art," and uh, it just it just looks nice. It's teddy bears on the moon, it's cute. Um, so yeah, this is called how Dali uh, could power a creative revolution. Uh, so let's jump right in. Every few years. Uh, technology comes across uh, comes along uh, that splits the world neatly into before and after. I remember the first time I saw a YouTube video embedded on a web page. The first time I synced Evernote files between devices. The first time I scanned tweets from people nearby to see what they were saying about a concert I was attending. I remember the first time I shazammed a song, summoned an Uber, and streamed myself live using Meerkat. I've, I've, I've never, I don't remember things like this. I really don't. I don't remember the first song I shazammed. I respect for, respect for doing it. That's a random thing to know, but I, I just, and I guess it's a cool thing to know, but yeah, I just never bothered. Uh, what makes these moments stand out, I think, is the sense that some unpredictable set of new possibilities has been, had been unlocked. What would the web become uh, when you could easily add video clips to it? When you could summon any file to your phone from the cloud. When you could broadcast yourself to the world. It's been a few years since I saw the sort of nascent... That's uh, how you say it, right? Nascent? I think it's nascent. Uh, technology uh, that made me call my friends and say, you've got to see this. But this week I did because I have a new one to add to the list. It's an image generation tool called Dali. And while I have very little idea of how it will eventually be used, it's one of the most compelling new products I've seen since I started writing this news there. It's the news there, apparently. Uh, technically, uh, it, the techno- technically, the technology in question is Dali 2. It was created by OpenAI, a seven-year-old San Francisco ba- uh, company whose uh, mission is to create a safe and useful artificial general intelligence. OpenAI is already known for it in its field for creating GPT-3. See, we, we've talked about this before. We talked about that um, on a... 
on a long read, actually. Um, so if you want to go peep that, Cuffy uh, dropped a couple of weeks ago um, about poetry. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was talking about the AI GPT-3. So it's interesting how it comes, it comes back around. Uh, a powerful tool for generating sophisticated text passages from simple prompts. And Copilot, a tool that helps automate writing code for software engineers. Dali, a portmanteau, portmanteau, is that you say? Of uh, Surrealist Salvador Dali and Pixar's Wally. Uh, Wally uh, takes uh, prompt, text prompts and generates images from them. In January 2021, the company introduced the first version of the tool, which was uh, limited to 256 by 256 pixel squares. But the second version, which entered a private research beta in April, feels like a radical leap forward. The images are now uh, 1024 by 1024 pixels and can Im- uh, incorporate new techniques such as in-painting, replacing one or more elements of an image with another. Uh, so imagine taking a photo of an orange in a bowl and replacing it with an apple. Uh, Dali has also improved understanding the relationship between objects, which helps it depict increasingly fantastic scenes, a koala dunking a basketball, an astronaut riding a horse. For weeks now, threads of Dali-generated images have been taken over my Twitter timeline, and after I'm mused about what I might do with the technology, namely waste countless hours on it, a very nice person at OpenAR took pity on me and invited me to into the private research beta. The number of people who have access now is in uh, in is now in the low thousands. A spokeswoman told me today the company is hoping to add a thousand people a week. I would love to be in this, by the way, but I don't know what I'd use it for. I, I don't know what I'm asking. Uh, upon creating an account, OpenAI makes you agree to Dali's content policy, which is designed to prevent most of the obvious potential abuse of the platform. Uh, there is no hate, harassment, violence, sex, or nudity allowed. And the company also asks you not to create images related to politi- politics or politicians. Uh, so the athletic can't use this. <laughs> I took myself that one, then I start coughing. Uh, brackets here it seems worth knowing that among OpenAI's co-founders is Elon Musk who is famously mad at Twitter for a much, uh, much less restrictive set of policies he left this board in 2018 uh, Dali also prevents a lot of potential uh, image creation by adding keywords shooting for example uh, to a block list uh, you're also not allowed to use it to create images intended to deceive no deepfakes allowed and while there's no prohibition against uh, trying to make images based on public figures, you can't upload photos of people without their permission. And the technology seems to uh, slightly blur most faces to make it clear that the images have been manipulated. Once you've agreed to that, you're presented with Dolly's delightfully simple interface, a text box inviting you to create whatever you can think of. Content policy permitting. Imagine using a Google search bar like it was Photoshop. That's Dolly. Borrowing some inspiration from the search engine, Dali includes a surprise me button that pre-populates the text with a suggested query based on its past successes. I've often used this to get ideas for trying uh, artistic styles I might never have considered otherwise, a uh, macro 35mm photograph, for example, or pixel art. For each of my initial queries, uh, Dali would take around 15 seconds to generate 10 images. Uh, in other brackets, earlier this week, the number of images reduced to 6 to allow more uh, people access. Nearly every time, I would find myself cursing out loud uh, and laughing how good the results were. For example, uh, so there's examples here, um, such as a Shiba Inu dog dressed as a firefighter and actually looks really good. Um, a bulldog dressed as a wizard, uh, uh, a comma digital art. A uh, frog wearing a hat, uh, digital art. Uh, uh, what's this one? Uh, the metaverse at night, digital art. 
Uh, wow, that's that's okay. You can you you might have to repeat these for yourself. These are actually kind of, especially this one, Metaverse at Night. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, I want to attempt to explain here how Dali is making these images, in part uh, because I'm still working to understand it myself. One of the core technologies involved, diffusion, is explained helpfully in this blog last year from Google AI. If you want to peep, uh, but I have re- uh, been repeatedly struck by how creative this uh, image genera- uh, generation technology can seem. Take, for example, two results shared in my Discord uh, by another reader Dali, with Dolly Access. Uh, and basically, the thing is, uh, a bear economist in front of a stock chart crashing. <laughs> oh, gosh. And they're showing, um, you know, the differences between the between the ones they got. Uh, uh, bought economist in front of a graph of a surging stock market with upline synthwave digital art. And... Uh, yeah, that's a ball with a synth wave. Uh, it's striking to the degree to which Dali captures emotion here, the fright and exasperation of the bear and the aggression of the bull. It seems wrong to describe any of this as quote-unquote creative. Uh, what we're looking at here are nothing more than pro- uh, probabilistic guesses, and yet they have on me the same effect that looking at something truly creative would. Another compelling aspect of Dali is uh, the way it will attempt to solve a single problem in a variety of ways. For example, when I asked it to show me a delicious cinnamon bun with googly eyes, it had to figure out how to depict the eyes. Sometimes Dali added a pair of plastic looking eyes to a roll, as uh, I would have done other times it created eyes out of the negative space and the frosting, and in one case it made eyes out of the miniature, <laughs> it made the eyes out of miniature cinnamon rolls. <laughs> that was one of the times I cursed out loud and started laughing. Uh, Dali is the most advanced image generation tool I've seen to date. It's far from the only one. I've also experimented lightly with a similar tool uh, named Midjourney, uh, which is also in beta. Google has announced another uh, another named Imogen, spelled with like the image, I-M-A-G-E-N, uh, but has yet to let outsiders try it. The third tool, Dolly Mini, has generated a series of viral images over the past few days. Um, so that's the shit poster one, uh, where you see on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, viral images over the past few days is no relation to OpenAI or Dali, though. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't know there was no relation. Okay. Um, and uh, imagine the developer will get hit with a cease and desist there. Surely, that'll be a unfortunate day. I thought that was the place for shit. Post- I thought they did a mini version or something like that. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely going to get clapped. Uh, OpenAI told me that it hasn't yet made any decisions about whether and how Dali might someday become available more generally. The point of the current research beta is to show people use uh, this, uh, show people use this technology, okay, uh, adapting both the tool and content policies as necessary. And yet already, the number of use cases artists have discovered for Dali is surprising. Uh, one artist is using Dali to create augmented reality filters for social apps. A chef in Miami is using it to get new ideas for how to plate his dishes. Uh, ben Thompson wrote a prescient piece, uh, I love that word, prescient, uh, about how Dali could be used to create extremely cheap environments and objects in the metaverse. It's natural and appropriate to worry about what this sort of automation might do for uh, two professional illustrators. It may well be that many jobs are lost, and yet I can't help but think tools like Dali could be useful in, other, in their workflows. What if they asked Dali to sketch out a few concepts for them? Uh, they got a start... They, they got started, for example. Um, I'm assuming they say to get started, but anyway. The, uh, the tool lets you create variations of any image. I used it to make alternate platformer logos. Uh, I'll stick with the logo I've got, but if I were an illustrator, I might appreciate the alternative suggestions, if only for the inspiration. It's also worth note, uh, considering uh, what creative potential these tools might open up. 
for people who would never think or could afford or could afford to hire an illustrator. As a kid, I wrote my own comic books, but my illustration skills never progressed very far. What if I could have had uh, could have could have instructed Dali to draw all my superheroes for me instead? On one hand, uh, yeah, on one hand, this doesn't seem uh, like the sort of tool that most people would use every day. And yet I imagine that in the coming months and years, we'll find ever more creative applications of tech like this. In e-commerce, in, e -so in social apps, in the home at work. For artists, it looks like uh, it could be one of the most powerful tools for remixing culture that we've ever seen. Assuming the copyright issues get sorted out, uh, I suspect we'll see some harmful applications of this tool, tool as well. While I trust OpenAI to enforce strong policies against misuse of DALI, surely similar tools will emerge and take more of an anything-goes approach to content moderation. People are already creating malicious, often pornographic deepfakes to harass their exes using the crude tools available today. That technology is only going to get better. It's often the case that when a new technology emerges, we focus on its happier, more whimsical uses, only to ignore how it might be misused in the future. As thrilled as I have been to use DALI, I'm also quite anxious about what similar tools could do in the hands of less scrupulous companies. It's also worth no, uh, thinking about uh, what even positive uses of, of this technology would even do, uh, could do at scale. Uh, most images we encounter online are created by AI. Uh, what does that do to our sense of reality? How will we know what anything we are seeing is real? For now, Dali feels like a breakthrough in the history of consumer tech. The question is whether in a few years we'll think of it as the start of creative revolution or something more worrisome. The future is already here, and it's adding a thousand users a week. The time to discuss its implications is now, before the rest of the world gets its hands on it. Uh, and yeah, I've, I I feel like she's probably just right on a lot of, the, a lot of those fronts. Um, there, there will be um, some company that will just, you know, open the floodgates and uh, maybe some freaky... I mean, the, the blurring of the faces that I've seen, especially on like the Dali Mini, which I've just, you know obviously found out it's not related to Dali or OpenAI at all, um, you know, that they even that blurred our faces. So, um, yeah, I feel like that's probably the, a, a good thing. Um, there is actually a great video um, via Studio, um, which is the uh, secondary channel to MQBHD. Shout out to Marcus, Brown, Marcus Brownlee and his, and his crew. Um, they actually got their in-house illustrator to, you know, kind of, kind of go against the AI... Um, in like a yeah, like free battle, just a, a free free round kind of a you know prompt, and you know he spent a couple of days doing working on it, and then uh, he eventually won. So big ups to him. Um, but it was interesting, uh, just that that particular video. Um, so if you want to go peep that, um, go peep for yourself first. Studio Dali will probably come up in search on YouTube. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I I can be very pessimistic about um, things like this. You know, I, I just think of the bad things that could be done with it. But the fact that OpenAI have kind of you know already done some restrict restrictive um, measures on it is, I think, good. Um, and yeah, I'm mean, I'm excited to see what it can do. Um, I don't think it will kill the illustration business. I don't think it will automate that. Um, but I do think it will be a very interesting tool to use. And when I said. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth In Podcast Network, I have a Charlie Toad, and it's been what's good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. You can find his link in the full show notes. Thanks to Job Records for the track, and also find their link in the full show notes. And thanks to Friend of Five, Nappy High, for the ability to use Charismatic for the interlude. 
you're going to find his link in the full show notes. There's probably a way I can uh, shorten all that, right? Yeah, I've I've, I've gotten a bit into a uh, I've gotten in, uh, into a routine saying that now, and I feel like I can shorten it, but I've just never actually thought of it until now. Uh, but anyway, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> finish up there. I <laughs> hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. Until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.